Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, Grumlaw Church. How are we doing today? We, we good? Y'all are still here as we enter into part four of this series titled Controversial Jesus, a series that's going to take us right up to the Christmas season, a series that includes topics such as abortion and politics and marriage and divorce, money, gender dysphoria, and others, uh, a series that we've been preparing for here now for, for over 16 months. Uh, I'll also just kind of throw this out right here on the front end as well. We've, we've said this just about every single week that uh, this is kind of a unique series in that we are utilizing video teaching in a way that we have never done before, where uh, because of the weight of some of these topics, we just felt like it was important that you hear uh, these topics straight from my lips. And so uh, if you're wondering and you are hearing video teaching today, you're like, oh my goodness, is this like something that we're going to begin doing on a more regular basis? The answer is no. Uh, live teaching is the lane that we're going to continue to run in. But because, again, of the weight of some of these topics, we felt like it was important, again, uh, that you hear it straight from the lead pastor. Uh, additionally, if you are hearing video teaching today, uh, you will not be hearing video teaching next week. No, no campus will receive that two weeks in a row. Um, um, additionally, uh, I am not using this as an opportunity to, to relax at home. If I uh, am on video at one campus, it means that I am preaching live at the other. And, and I really just actually want to say right here and pause and say thank you. Uh, you all have been amazing in this regards. I, I have heard no pushback whatsoever uh, from any of you. It seems like you all understand why we decided to run in this lane here for the sake of this series. Uh, and just in case you were not here for part one, uh, which I, I would highly recommend going back and listening to if you weren't here, uh, the why behind this series is, is pretty simple. If the church doesn't disciple you, the, the world sure will. And we're seeing that in increasing measure right now. In my humble opinion, gone are the days where people like myself, pastors, and mind you, this is very much a conviction that I once held, where we can get away with saying things like, well, those are, those are topics best reserved for, for private conversations. Uh, because these have become such public conversations, we can't afford to wait for you to specifically come and ask these questions in, in a more private setting. In, in fact, last week, as we discussed Jesus and the sexual revolution, and this was validating, uh, one of the things that I heard over and over again from the lips of parents in particular was this sentiment of, of thank you. And, and many of you went on to explain that these topics are being discussed quite publicly in, for instance, your, your children's schools, and, and it was refreshing that your child was being presented presented with, with a different viewpoint. But, but as we have said over and over again through the first three weeks of this series, not merely a different viewpoint, but, but a better one. And, and here's why I say that so unflinchingly. God is, is for you. God has given the creation, that is you and I, a, a manual for life. And the role of this text isn't to restrict, it's not to repress us, it's here to rather protect us. God's commands, as we talked about last week, they're not prison bars, they're, they're train tracks to, to joy and purpose and peace and contentment, and, and escaping them isn't freedom, it's, it's a train wreck. As we discussed last week, God doesn't give commands because he loves rules, God gives commands because he loves you. And in this way, as we've been talking about, if, if God says it to us, then it must be best for us. Now, as we move today into uh, our next controversial topic, I, I would love to just pray uh, for humbled hearts to receive whatever it is that you would like to say to us this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we do just say thank you. Thank you that you have preserved these words for us. Thank you that you have our best interests in mind. Thank you that you are so squarely for us that we see the evidence of that all over our lives and the lives of the people around us. And God, uh, as I have been desperately praying for during this series, I, I pray that all of us, myself very much included, that we would have a humbled, softened heart uh, to, to be willing to receive what it is that you would like to speak to us about today and that we would be people uh, who are marked by our doing. Not, not just our listening, not just our feeling convicted, but that when you prompt, when you nudge, uh, we would be willing to take and, and step into uh, those steps of obedience that you're leading us to, understanding that, again, you're ultimately leading us to so, towards something that is so much better. You're a good, you're a kind father. Uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, the title of today's message is Jesus and the Gay Community. Uh, believe it or not, of all the questions that I receive as a pastor, both in person, in my DMs, text, email, uh, this question is is far and away the most common one that I receive, and, and frankly, it's it's not even close. Now, now in order to appropriately address this topic, I, I want to throw out a couple of disclaimers right here on the front end of this message. Uh, one, it would be completely unreasonable to assume that I might completely and, and thoroughly unpack this subject in, in a 30-minute conversation. Uh, but I will tell you that I very, very clearly sensed the Holy Spirit's direction and leading in this, uh, and also throw that out just to say, like, this is not going to be the last time that I teach on the subject. Uh, additionally, to appropriately understand my heart, uh, this church's heart, you really have to listen to both part one of this series, which really laid the groundwork for the why we're embarking on this journey to begin with. And, and, and additionally, you really need to listen to last week, part three, titled Jesus and the Sexual Revolution, because it similarly serves as a sort of intro for this week and next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be addressing the transgender movement. So you can always get yourself caught up at gromalacom slash messages. Uh, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. So, so if you feel, here's my point, at the end of this message, uh, that it was a bit lacking, uh, but you were not here for parts one and three, please reserve judgment until you listen to those other two messages. Fair, fair enough? Uh, last disclaimer, and this is the most obvious one. I, I recognize that I'm probably not the most qualified individual to speak to this topic. I think it's appropriate to acknowledge that I am a theologically conservative, heterosexual male that is happily married to a woman, 13 years and counting, uh, and I have four children. So I will not be speaking this morning, obviously, from a place of experience. Rather, I'll be speaking from a place of conviction. Uh, honestly, it's not unlike what I do every other Sunday. A, a theological conviction that comes from God's living, breathing word, something that he has so firmly rooted in my heart. As discussed previously in this series, my primary role as the pastor of this church is to present all of you with biblical truth, to, to teach the entirety of the scriptures, even the stuff that doesn't particularly sit well with me or you, even the stuff that makes all of us, well, a little squirmy. I'm not a politician. That, that is, I'm not trying to win votes. I'm, I'm rather a pastor. I'm, I'm trying to win souls. So, so, so I teach, and, and it's entirely up to you what you do with it, what, whether you receive or, or you reject. And, and for the record, I want to make sure this is really, really clear. This happens every single week. <laughs> it's not just true of these more hot-button topics, though it does feel a bit weightier on weeks like this. But, but you ultimately get to decide, and again, this is true of every week because God will gave you a free will, which path you choose, whether you receive or you reject, whether you choose the word or, or the world. And, and I say that, I want to be very careful of this throughout this message, 
I don't say that with any sort of condescending tone, meaning that if you completely reject what I present today, that, that, that's up to you. And, and I'll still love you. We can still be friends. In fact, you can still be a part of this church. I'm not trying to be combative with these words. I'm rather attempting to do what Jesus did so well during his time on this earth, but present truth in a very grace-filled way. So, so at the end of this, even if everything inside of you is pushing back, even if you're going, oh my goodness, I don't think I can ever come back to this place. I'm begging you to resist that urge. Resist that urge to head for the hills. Resist that urge to never come back. Because some of you are feeling right now, because I've literally heard this over the first three weeks of this series, like, oh, Shay, I really love this place. Why did you have to go and dip your toes into topics like this and make me pick a side? I don't want to start over. And guess what? You don't have to. In fact, one of the defining marks of followers of Jesus should be the fact that we can still get along even when we disagree. If you read through Paul's letters, which by the way is about half of the New Testament, it's basically Paul begging Christians, can you guys just please get along? But Paul's point was quite simple. If we can't get along in here, who's going to listen to our message out there? If every time we disagree, we, we attack and we assassinate and we disparage and we hold grudges and we ignore and we're passive aggressive, isn't, isn't that sort of how the world operates? And aren't we supposed to be as followers of Jesus? Well, different. But one of our core values, and I might actually take it a step further and say the core value around here that kind of sits above the rest is, is belong before you believe. Listen, if you're new around here, uh, we don't ask you to wholeheartedly embrace every word contained within this book on day one. Y your faith journey, as we often put it, is just that. It's a, it's a journey. It, it takes time. Y'all, I'm the pastor of this church, and I still, and I'm guessing I forever will, I still butt up to words in this book, and, and, and it makes me push back. There's stuff that just inherently I go, oh, I don't like it. If we don't create space amongst this faith community, within this faith community, for those of you who are just starting to explore, well, where else are you going to go? The church must be that place. And if you're sitting here today and, and you have experienced otherwise, I mean this when I say this, I am so sorry. That, that is not representative of who Jesus is. That is not the church that he envisioned, that he put into motion. Jesus wouldn't be put off by you. He wouldn't be turned off by your behavior, past, present, or future. Jesus got off of his throne in heaven for you. I mean, that is how crazy he is about you. It's how desperately he wants to win you back. And, and he himself would choose the local church as the avenue to take his message to the ends of the earth, knowing that it would get pretty messy sometimes. In my opinion, where this conversation often falls woefully short, is that we approach homosexuality as a position rather than thinking of a person. Meaning, it's easy to have a very staunch, aggressive, unsympathetic opinion on a topic like this when, when that's all it is in your mind, a topic to be addressed. But, but my experience has shown me that, that all of that gets flipped upside down once you have an actual relationship with someone who is wrestling with same-sex attraction. See, see, it was easy to hold the opinion that homosexuality is sin, plain and simple, and until your son let you know that he's been wrestling with same-sex attraction, and suddenly, well, it's not as simple. It, it was easy to hold such prideful thoughts about the gay community until you befriended that coworker, and, and so many of those prejudices came, came crashing down. 
Literally, as I prepared this message, uh, I wrote the name down of a friend on a post-it note who's a part of this faith community who wrestles with same-sex attraction, and, and I put it on my desk. And I reminded myself throughout this message as I was preparing, as the Holy Spirit was giving words like, Shay, that is who you are speaking to this morning. Not a position, but a person, a a friend, an image bearer of the most high God whom I, I, by the way, care deeply about. Now, now as discussed last week, so so I'm not going to spend too much time parked here right now. Please go back and listen to last week because we do thoroughly unpack this. The, The world would have you believe that your sexuality is your identity. I used the example last week that, that it's rarely, if ever said, hey, you're wrestling with same-sex attraction. Even to some of you, that phraseology, it comes across as combative, and, and I'm honestly very sympathetic towards that. But rather, it is said, you are gay. And, and this is intentional on the part of the evil one, because he knows that if he can define your identity, then he'll control your behavior because your activity is always determined by your identity. And by the way, that's not a Christian principle. That's just reality. That's human behavior. And, and to be very clear, this is not limited to sexual orientation, as we're going to actually unpack further in subsequent weeks. Satan doesn't really care what or who you attach your identity to so long as it's not Jesus. Many people, for example, in this room have attached their identities to other very unworthy worldly substitutes. For example, careers, possessions, materialism, motherhood, children and their child's pursuits. I could go on and on. Even your heterosexual marriage, even your heterosexual relationship. But but, but only Jesus, as we talked about last week, only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And you are a child of the Most High God. And attaching your identity to anything or anyone other than Jesus will always prove to be an exercise in futility. It harks back to what we talked about in part two when we addressed Jesus and exclusivity. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. So when your identity is so firmly attached to your sexuality, It makes sense why a message like this is so incredibly personal. Because it doesn't feel, because of everything that you've learned and experienced during your time on this earth, it doesn't feel like I'm addressing a mere desire. It feels like I'm attacking you. Because your sexuality and your identity have become one and the same. This is the same reason, again, just to give us a little thought experiment here. This is the same reason that whenever we talk about money, people get all kinds of defensive because money, materialism is the source of identity for, I'm going to say this, the majority of Americans. So when Jesus teaches that we're, for instance, to be generous, that everything that we have been given is a gift from God to be leveraged for those around us and his mission here on this earth, well, that feels like like I'm trying to take your identity away from you. That's not true though. I'm trying to get you to fill that God-shaped void in your life with Jesus rather than all of those cheap substitutes that are forever going to fall short. Jesus is the only one who can deliver on true joy, true purpose, true contentment, true peace, something that we are all universally searching for. Now, for many people in this room, the only viewpoint that you've ever been presented with in regards to homosexuality, or as you've probably noticed, the way I prefer to address it, same-sex attraction, uh, is that of the worlds, which, which usually goes something like this. If it comes natural to me, then it must be best for me. If I have homosexual desires, then, then why wouldn't I act on those? 
If, if it's not hurting me or the people around me, then, then what's the big deal? In particular, and this would be the more progressive Christian viewpoint, if I engage in a monogamous same-sex relationship, who is that harming? Now, now a foundational tenet of the Christian faith that, that we talk about often around here, and again, it's not just within this context of sexuality, and, and Jesus was sure to drive this home during his time on this earth, is what comes natural to us is, is rarely what is best for us. Think about it this way. Uh, Natural rarely leads us in the right direction. Let's keep it in the realm of sexuality and, in fact, kind of point the finger at myself. You want to know what what natural leads me towards? And and for those of you who are new, this is going to be a little bit jarring coming from the lips of the lead pastor. Uh, Natural leads me to staring too long at the scantily dressed woman or the woman who's wearing really tight yoga pants. Natural would lead me to looking at pornography whenever my wife is out of town. Natural would lead me to fantasizing about attractive coworkers. Natural would lead me to basically sleeping with every attractive woman that I come into contact with. I can go on, but you get the idea. If I listened to my natural desires, my marriage wouldn't have lasted like a week. The, the defining call in so many ways for the follower of Jesus, and these words are captured for us, in Matthew's gospel account, and again, from the lips of Jesus himself, he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, this next line here is so important, let's read it together, you must give up your own way, one more time, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Church, in so many ways, this is Christianity 101, rejecting you, rejecting your flesh, rejecting who and what the world says that you should be, and instead using the scriptures as the grid by which we filter the desires of our heart. In church, I'm going to speak in a very, very straightforward way when I say this right now. Scripture could not be more clear on this topic, could not be more clear on this desire. And listen, I want to make sure you hear me so clear on this. This is a hard truth to accept, and I am so sympathetic towards this. But particularly if you or someone you care about wrestles with same-sex attraction, again, because of how our identity and sexuality have become so wrapped up in one another, because of everything the world would tell you, and additionally, how the big C church has muddied the waters in recent years. Let me briefly expound upon that. It's worth noting that up until the 1960s, again, cue the, the sexual revolution, virtually every Christian denomination, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and, and almost every one of the 50,000 Protestant denominations has held to the same sexual ethic on this issue. Here's why I bring this up. When we begin to see a shift or a departure from the historic teachings or, or the theological convictions of the big C church, We shouldn't approach that with celebration, but rather caution. And and here's why. God does not change. And as a result, in turn, his living, breathing word, which has been given to us as a gift, does not change. When we speak of the scriptures, we're not talking about a fluid document. It's unchanging. Inerrant is a word that you will often hear us use to describe it. It was created by our perfect creator for the imperfect creation, a sort of manual for life. So whenever we see a topic or a position departing from the historical teachings of the Big C Church, our internal alarm bell should be going off. And this is perhaps the most glaring example of our generation. 
Now, I this morning do not have time to dive into every passage that addresses this issue, so I chose, or more appropriately stated, I really felt led to to a a couple passages in particular, one from the Old Testament, uh, which is kind of the first half of the Bible, and then one from the New Testament, the latter half of the Scriptures. And to be very clear, as I present these passages, and I want to make sure that this is well understood, the intent is not to give you, that is, Christians sitting here today, some sort of a biblical weapon to wield towards the homosexual community. If you feel any of that creeping up inside of you, please do all of us a favor and go find a different church. My intent isn't to arm you. It is to inform you of God's teaching on the subject. And again, it is entirely up to you whether you receive or reject. Uh, The two examples that we're going to take a look at here from uh, the Old Testament we find in Leviticus, just a couple of chapters apart from each other. The first one we find in Leviticus chapter 18. And by the way, this is a book that can be a pretty difficult read. Um, I've never heard anyone say, man, I I just love the book of Leviticus. Uh, Because there are some hard words and hard truths uh, within that text. Uh, There in Leviticus 18, it says, Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man is with a woman. It is a detestable sin. Uh, Later in chapter 20, it says, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. Now, now it's worth noting uh, that these are words, these are commands given directly to Moses from God himself. And, And as you can see, I think for yourself, it doesn't get much more direct. It doesn't get much more clear than this. And so it's a very reasonable question to ask, okay, how has the more progressive Christian camp skirted around passages like this? And and even when I say that, uh, I don't mean that to be argumentative. But my intent, again, is just to inform this morning uh, and to let you know that the most common argument against those passages of scriptures goes something like this. These passages don't apply to us because we are people of the new covenant, not the old covenant. We're people of the new covenant, not the old covenant. Now, if you're not familiar with that language, uh, the Bible, again, is divided into two sections, the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. And, and actually, more appropriately addressed, we would actually call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant is all the stuff that applies before Jesus, before Jesus steps onto the scene and fulfills that Old Covenant. Uh, much of the sacrificial and the temple model is described within that Old Covenant. Uh, but we are New Covenant people because of how Jesus has fulfilled that Old Covenant. And very simply, in response to that pushback that, like, it doesn't apply to us because we're New Covenant people, not Old Covenant people, um, the response to that is we don't get to just throw the Old Testament out. And, and, And here's why. Jesus, throughout his time on earth, would very regularly reference Old Testament passages, including specifically the book of Leviticus, as did other New Testament writers, that they frequently address the Old Testament writings. Uh, Most commonly, as I'm going to address in a moment, that the writers reference the Old Testament frequently as a call to holiness as we follow Jesus. Uh, Additionally, when we consider the broader context of these passages, God forbids in conjunction with those two verses, and I'm just going to list this stuff off, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in a court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, and turning to witches. So when we consider the greater vision for morality and more importantly, holiness that is being presented here, we would never, not a single person in this room who's watching right now, we would never make a case for any of these other issues. We would never say, well, bestiality is okay because we're, we're New Testament people or, or oppressing your neighbor is okay because again, we're New Covenant people or 
Making your daughter a prostitute is, is okay because, again, that was old covenant stuff, and, and, and now we are new covenant people. We would never make a case for any of these other issues uh, that we should tolerate or uphold any of them. And so the question then presents itself, why are we singling out homosexuality? In my opinion, I just don't find it to be a credible argument. But furthermore, as new covenant people of, again, which we are, we know we are called to look at the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And I'm going to quickly break that down. The ceremonial law, which is much of the temple and sacrificial system, has been fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore it's no longer relevant. The civil law isn't relevant to us because we're not a theocracy. But the moral law of God is true for all people in all places for all time. So, so despite the efforts of the more progressive camp to throw the Old Testament to the side like a poor cut of meat, the argument simply does not stand. And, and I want us to keep in mind, this is really important, that the theme of the entire book of Leviticus is holiness. Holiness is mentioned 87 different times in this book with God giving these explicit commands. And again, think train tracks, not prison bars. He gives us these explicit commands in order to lead his people to a life that more closely resembles the original design before we started rebelling and being led away by our sinful desires. And just to be clear, that vision for each of our lives has not changed. God's desire is that you would become more and more like him. That the singular pursuit of each of our lives would be Christ-likeness and obedience to his teachings and his promptings. And not because he's some sort of a control freak, but because that will ultimately lead to the most satisfying, content, joy-filled life imaginable. What was originally designed for us before our rebellion and our sin. God's ultimate vision for your life, it isn't happiness, it's, it's holiness. If it was happiness, sure, grab that instant gratification that your flesh is screaming for. But, but as we often speak of, God is looking further down the road than we have the ability to see, uh, attempting to lead us towards ultimate rather than immediate. And it's in that pursuit of holiness that, that we will find true joy. And not found in circumstances, that's happiness, but rather in our identity in Christ. Now, now with that bigger vision in mind, this is the same lens that Paul brings up this topic of sexual immorality for discussion in, in his letter to the early Christian church in Corinth, of which we're going to be taking a look at right now. Paul is actually building off of this vision for holiness, or as we often refer to it as new covenant people, being conformed into the image of Christ. We pick up uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says there, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy. And, and, and I point out greedy here because that applies to a lot more people than any of this other stuff. Nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and then he says, and that is what some of you were. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is building off of this vision laid out in Leviticus for holiness. He's literally expanding off those exact same passages. And, and then, don't miss this, he goes on to list a bunch of examples. It, it, it was never intended to be like a complete list, a, a thorough list of which homosexuality is explicitly mentioned. But, but see where he starts right here, and this is really, really important. He begins with sexual sin. And this is where if you're sitting here today and you're wrestling with same-sex attraction, 
that the church owes you a very sincere apology. That the church has had this nasty, unfair, unkind habit of elevating homosexuality above all other sin. And notice that Paul, nor any other New Testament or Old Testament writer, including God himself, does not make this distinction. As we've said throughout this series, all sin is created equal in that it separates us from God. It damages our relationship with God and our relationship to others. But the consequences of all sin are not the same. And in this way, sexual sin throughout scripture, sexual immorality as it's often referred to, is specifically called out time and time again because the consequences of sexual sin are far greater. But where the Big C Church has greatly harmed the homosexual community is how it has been elevated above other forms of sexual sin. And if I can be frank, you want to know what's a lot more rampant than homosexuality in this faith community? Pornography addictions and cohabitating before marriage. Single people raising their hands on Sunday mornings as they praise Jesus, then sleeping with their girlfriend or their boyfriend by Sunday night. So so to those of you sitting here today wrestling with same-sex attraction, to to, to the loved ones of those wrestling with same-sex attraction, we owe you an apology. I, I am sorry. And this is going to rub some of you watching right now the wrong way, but I frankly don't really care. Um, I admire your faith. For, For those of you who walked through the doors today wrestling with those desires, understanding full well how the church has historically treated you, and yet you still showed up, that is a courage and a faith that honors the living God. And so I want to say thank you for not giving up on the bride of Christ. And here's my commitment to all of you watching right now. We will, for for as long as I have a say in the matter, forever be a church that opens our arms, not half-heartedly, not begrudgingly, but, but with the love that our risen Savior moves us to, to the hurting, the rejected, the confused, the wounded, the curious, those who are genuinely seeking Jesus. Belong before you believe is not mere lip service. It's what Jesus modeled during his time on this earth and what his death and resurrection requires of us. I want to call us back to verse 11. Paul says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen, all those people listed earlier in this passage, that the sexually immoral, the, the greedy, the drunkards, the liars. That, that is precisely who Jesus came for. See, see, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. It, and it isn't until you see yourself as a sinner that you will see a need for a savior. We're told that that is who you were, but that's not who you are anymore. And it doesn't mean that those desires are gone. It means you don't have to listen to them anymore because you are not a slave to your desires. You have the spirit of the living God living inside of you. There is freedom in Christ. We are more than conquerors. He calls the shots. Your identity isn't found in your desires from here on out. Your identity is found in your risen Savior who thought so highly of you that he would freely give his life for you. What you did isn't who you are. Your desires are not who you are. Instead, anchor yourself on what Jesus did for you. The king of the universe will get off of his throne in heaven for you. That is how highly he thinks of you. He is for you. 
He gives us these commands not to restrict, but, but to protect. What a good, kind, loving God we serve. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you take such a keen and specific interest in each of our lives. We thank you that you love us well enough to, to not leave us in the state that you found us in. That, that, that you, don't, you don't excuse sin, but at the same time you pour on grace and, and mercy when we need it the most. We thank you that you have a, a higher vision for each of our lives than, than we often have for ourselves. I pray that we would be a church, God, that is known for our compassion and our mercy, not a church that is known for just like believing the right things, but we just model you really well in our communities. We, we love the people around us really, really well, like, like you did, Jesus. So God, whatever it is that you're stirring up in each of our hearts today, again, I pray as I prayed at the beginning that we would be a people who, who do. We are people who, who are moved to action. Action towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to the world where we show a love that is so compelling that, that people can't help but take a closer look. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.